welcome to This Girl Cam, where we speak to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and in addition to my role as a podcast host and a mother of four, I'm a certified Salesforce admin. I'm passionate about optimising and simplifying CRM systems, allowing them to be a trusted ally rather than the company headache they can so often become. Today, I'm talking to Jamita Parak, Vice President of Enterprise Customer Engagement, Medible. As I always do with these podcasts, I conducted a pre-interview chat with Jamita way back in the first half of 2023, and she absolutely blew me away. Hearing her talk about her deep passion for patient centricity, being a carer for a cancer patient herself, motherhood and DEI, she made such an impact on me. It took us a while to get to finally record. With Jamita being based in the US, we had time zones to navigate, along with the hectic diary she had that you would expect. But if ever I've been happy to have persevered, this is one of those occasions. Jamita's interview absolutely lit me up. I hope it does the same for you. So let's get going. Morning, Jamita. It is very early morning, isn't it, for you? Good morning, and especially with fall, you can see uh, the sun is still in, uh, waiting to come out. But this is this has been amazing. I'm so glad oh, we're connecting. Me too. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to see you, and you look bright-eyed considering it is six a.m. So <laughs> <laughs> you can see, I I, I usually prefer early yeah. starts. Uh, I have three beautiful girls who get straight into those golden hours when it comes to school. So I prefer early start in that way. I can get my get some of my peace, quiet thinking done before they're up. I and hear you. How old motion. are you girls? So I have twins who are who will turn 13 in April. Uh, so I have twin teenagers. Oh my, oh, my God. I can't even believe that. And I, I have a 10-year-old. So I have three girls. Uh, and they're very close in oh, age as well. Fabulous. I have twin girls as well, but mine are, <laughs> mine are two, yeah. nearly three. So exactly 10 years younger. I also have a 10-year-old. So, so there <laughs> we go. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your journey and your career to date, Jamita, and really some of the key turning points for you. And let's let's get straight into this. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say, I'm going to start from the very, very beginning. Um, I'm a pharmacist by training. I grew up in Mumbai, India. Um, I chose pharmacy as a profession because I saw my dad. My dad is a pharmacist as well. He, um, or he, he wasn't, he is in pharmaceutics, I should say. Um, he, growing up, I learned how to manufacture medicine. I saw him grow his business. So I, I felt like I was truly, truly passionate about learning that side, learning how it works, making it work, helping him and, and getting that satisfaction when, you, when you're following yeah. your passion. So I feel I chose pharmacy as a profession um, and that's when my journey started. I've had really, really amazing uh, mentors, leaders, who have followed in that way. In, in case of my education, I followed my father, who's, who's been amazing. Amazing as going, coming from a very small town in India, making himself known and having um, such a fulfilling career. Um, he's retired right now, but um, I, I followed him 
to choose my profession, but also choose the way I got into the profession and what I wanted to do that would mean something and give me a sense of purpose. So that's where I started. Um, I did my graduation from Mumbai, from a from uh, one of one of the best colleges in Mumbai for pharmacy. Um, then I met my husband, uh, uh, and he was here. He was studying here, and we got married. And I moved yeah. here. So that's where, like, part two of my my journey started. Um, as a pharmacist, I I felt like coming into a new country, I had to learn a lot, um, go back to school even. And in parallel, I, I wanted to try out different things. I was I, I felt like I needed um I needed something else. And I landed into a a, prof- a job called data listings reviewer. Right. So starting off coming to a new country, starting off from scratch, um having done bench research, having done drug development having done uh, some of the hospital pharmacy work, this was pretty new for me. So I started off as a data listings reviewer. Um, having that pharmaceutical background or having pharmacy, you knew what to look for uh, when it came to patients. So what a data listings reviewers reviewer does is he's a clinical scientist or he or she is a clinical scientist and they uh, they look through all the patient records to see if there's any discrepancy or if there was any safety event that uh, that was missed or forgotten or any safety signals that you're seeing through the data. So I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed doing it for two reasons. One, I was back to the core of what I had studied. And then second, I was coming closer to the patient. So I felt like that has been a common thread throughout my journey uh, as I was learning, not just living in a, in a new country, living in this new, uh, I would say, in all aspects, right? Like I didn't even know how to drive, <laughs> like while on the opposite side of the road. So just just simple things that were so uh, so natural for me in India, this was a whole new ballgame. So as a 24, 25-year-old, um, I started my life again. It felt like it, as if I had to learn to walk again. Um, it, some of the best friends I've made have been in, those, in, in that time frame. I'm still friends with those colleagues who've not just taught me how to learn on the job, but also um, taught me how to live life. Yeah. So... It's been sort of amazing. So from there, I joined uh, Genentech because that gave me a path. Um, I worked at, as a site coordinator working directly with the patients at a company called Benchmark Research. Um, and this is where I made some of my best friends. It, they had, my office was in San Francisco, uh, right in the middle of downtown. Nice. So colorful, so vibrant, um, but also with, uh, with people who were so open and inviting. Coming from India, knowing that I didn't know a lot of things, I hadn't even eaten peanut butter and jelly at that time. <laughs> Just saying, this is how naive I was. Uh, but that became a staple. Uh, didn't know what a subway oh was. And I'm in the same <laughs> well, at the train station because that Mumbai yeah, has a the lot sandwich. of... Uh, <laughs> the sandwich. The subway sandwich. So some of those friends have been really inviting. I think 
San Francisco is one of the best places, uh, having now traveled through the world quite a bit, I feel like San Francisco is a melting pot, a true melting pot in that sense. So that's where I started. I joined Genentech in 2007 as a, as a clinical study manager. Having been in San Francisco for two, two and a half, three years, and then going to Genentech, another amazing place to work. Another amazing place full of mentors, full of women leaders, I would say. So that's the first time I saw what women can achieve if they're able to overcome their own biases. One of my, one of my biggest, biggest mentor, a mentor or I would say a woman leader that I follow is Sue Desmond-Hellman. Sue was at the time heading up a a clinical drug development for Genentech. Um, this is pre-merger with Roche. And Sue was amazing, amazing. So coming into Genentech, again, was pretty inviting. Uh, Genentech is another amazing place to work. Um, and that's where I was first introduced with this concept of women leaders. I had met strong women who had done great things. I had observed them from far. This was like me in observing leadership, but also leaders that were able to cut through the noise and make way for women to lead, but also to make a difference in the society by doing so. So that's where I, I, I have a couple names for you there. Um, I think Sue Dustin Hellman was amazing, a fearsome force to hold. Uh, and she's done great things. I mean, not just at Genentech, but also she went on to become the CEO of Bill and Gates Foundation and then uh, is on board of Pfizer, especially helped during the COVID times, um, has been leading or had been leading or was chairing the pre-Gallion, now is part of the White House Advisory wow. Committee. So you you can see and you can see their path, you know. Uh, you can see what happens when you cut through the noise and just focus on uh, what difference you want to make in the world. So I felt like that was an, I mean, I, I have to thank my stars for getting me that opportunity, but also being able to witness her. I mean, since then, I've had several women leaders that I, I follow. So going back to your question about, tell me about yourself, there's two things that I'm super passionate about. Um, one is making a difference in the world especially in the oncology or the cancer space. I've seen too much of that where uh, a lot of, a couple of my loved ones have been affected. So I definitely want to do and be amongst a cup of, amongst the few people that are making a difference in the oncology space. The second one I would say is I, I want to be, I want my girls to be able to feel this, have the same feeling and follow their passion, but also follow really good women leaders. And, and the, I, I don't discriminate between men and women, but I feel like there is, there is a special force that um, definitely drives these women and that it's just different. But I want my girls to model after that. So I, wanna, I want them to think about me as one of those that they can model after, not just in in the successes and the accomplishment, but also in my failures, in choices that I make. I want them to be able to make their own choices. I want them to be able to uh, 
um, follow their passion without having any inhibitions. Um, so those were those are the two common things that drive me and help me do better every day. Um, and and you know this, you're a busy mom too with twins, but it's it's very satisfying when when you get that recognition from your kids that hey, I want to do this, you did that. I want to do this. You're doing so well for yourself. Why do I have to choose this or that? So I do want to leave yeah. that as a legacy for my kids. Um, so Genentech definitely gave me that platform to follow both of my dreams. Again, like I said, I was introduced to women leadership at Genentech. Uh, even now, the CEO, the, uh, Teresa Graham, is an amazing leader. I've witnessed her through her early days. So she's been amazing. Um, from after being at Genentech for almost, I want to say 16, 17 years in different roles, I joined Medible a year and a half ago, uh, again, following my team and my core, which is uh, following Michelle Longmire, who's another fearsome leader. Uh, she is a physician by uh, academia, and she also, she's a, I think she's a practicing physician, but she is an innovator. She is a leader who wants to make a difference. So this is where I, I feel my path has led me or I have followed these women who have been amazing so that I can learn from them, so that I can observe them. So I can, even if I get like 1% of what they have to give, I feel I would have learned and grown quite a bit. Um, in parallel, I am starting to pick up the liking towards regulatory innovation. And um, Michelle has been a force when it comes to patient centricity and sort of helping me with uh, sort of learn more in that space. Um, there's a couple others that have been starting to mold my mind um, and my brain in the direction of sort of, we need, we need the ecosystem to change. Not just this part, but that part and this part, the regulators, the, the sites, the patient mindset, the physician mindset, uh, and all of that from a regulatory innovation perspective. So I've been following Michelle Rohr, who heads up regulatory at mm -hmm. Roche, um, uh, and she has these amazing Monday Minutes, which I learned from quite a bit. Another amazing woman leader. Um, so Michelle. Roar and uh, Karen Jones. Karen heads up regulatory at Gilead. Karen comes from Roche, but also is very innovative in her thinking. She believes in sustainability, that our industry as a whole, if we want to, if we want to do right for the patients, we will have to come up with a sustainable model. We're, uh, our model, the way we operate is is. I don't want to call it dated, but needs to evolve. What evolve with the use of technology, with the use of sort of experience and data that we've collected throughout these years. So Karen Jones is another one that I follow. I lead amongst other women. And these are women who I feel like have shaped me as a woman leader in a way that I did, wouldn't have imagined uh, coming into this country. Um, there are several other leaders, I would say, and I'm only calling out women leaders because I really want to spot, shine or spotlight on them, but also thank them uh, for shaping me, my career, as well as my thinking.
uh, in who I am. So you've obviously highlighted there some really key women that have impacted you mm-hmm. as leaders and, and mentors. Do you see yourself, now you've got to this point in your career and the experience that you've gained and your achievement and the way your purpose has developed as well since having your girls, do you now see yourself as a leader? Do you see that you can do that for others? You know, it's such a, such a good question. And I ask that question to myself every day. Uh, I feel I have come a long way. Um, I, can, I cannot put myself uh, next to them, even though I'm on the same table sometimes with some of these women. Uh, I want to do better. Um, it's also, I, I don't know, as, a, as, as women, we, we have this, um, I, I feel like the imposter syndrome is yes. is real for us in a lot of different ways. So I, I feel these women are amazing. They continue to evolve, continue to grow. I want to be like them pretty much every day, and I try to emulate that. Uh, I have a lot to learn. You're right. Imposter syndrome is most definitely real because it it, it isn't something that, women particularly or certainly that's my experience seem ready to see about themselves yeah and and you know it's interesting olivia because we subconsciously know that the answer to that question is yes of course i'm a fearsome leader myself of course i'm a good mentor to lots of different people of course i'm a good role model to my kids um but somehow we want to do better we want to be the best version of ourselves and leave a legacy that uh, makes us answer this question differently. So I, I, I feel like there's something to say about us in terms of being able to grow and nurture that feeling, but also subconsciously keep, keep telling that voice in our heads that we are real. I mean, this is all real. Uh, if I just look back and think about what, where I was um, when I moved to this country and where I am today, that it should be a no-brainer question, right? For me to answer yes, but no, I do want to do better. I do want to see myself someday, someone like me that maybe your kids are interviewing that says, I want to yeah. be like that. Um, yeah, if I, I get this constant validation. So here's an interesting observation for you. My twins are almost teens. Um, They see me and they have so much, I want to call it respect. At the same time, um, they know I'm one of the best leaders out there. So for them, the answer to that question is, yes, of course, my mom is that. And of course, they're kids. So uh, my kids, so they, they have that bias. It's <laughs> not tough, but it's it's it, it's their job. But I feel like we hold ourselves back as women. Uh, we want to thrive better. We want to try. We want to always do better. We want to be the best. Um, and and I would say we we mm. are getting there. Hopefully, the answer to that question in the next five years. Uh, would have changed yes, to a yes. <laughs> You know, um, I saw something on LinkedIn um, a few days ago, I think, where a guy had posted, be the person that your dog thinks you are. 
And and perhaps <laughs> this conversation is saying that we need to be the people that our children see that we are. Maybe that's it. Absolutely. And and I would say so I have like three critiques as well as three judges uh, in my life. My kids are my biggest critique, as you can imagine. Well, uh, but they're also my biggest follower. Um, and in, in a good way, I do appreciate it helps me be the best version of myself. Uh, I look up to my dad. So every time I do something or I'm thinking of doing something, uh, he's my sounding board. Him and my husband are my sounding boards in that way. So those are my three critiques as well as my three biggest uh, cheerleaders when it comes to doing better, being the better version of myself. So I would, I would say uh, everyone needs that. Everyone needs that for two reasons. One, to always um, keep true to themselves, right? And always not just be there to recognize your accomplishments and your successes, but also help you through your failures, help you through the decisions that didn't go well or um, things that could have, you, could, you can do better. So I feel everyone should have that. And my mentors, of course, those are my fourth, co that's my fourth cohort uh, who keep me honest, keep me um, live and kicking and make sure I balance my passion with, uh, with, um, with, with, uh, with reality. So, okay, so that leads me nicely into passion because I want to get more into that. There are some key topics that I want to dig into with you. Um, so your role now is focused very much around uh, drug development and patient centricity and, and how the two come together, ensuring there is patient centricity in drug development. I also know that you're fascinated by the AI and the tech side of things. So I'd really like to get your take on how you think the tech and innovation can impact the patient centricity and drug development and the knock-on impact in the whole of pharma and biotech. This is a topic close to my heart. And, and I think I've, I've talked about this with a few people, but I also presented on this last year. I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, Olivia, our drug development processes are dated, but they're not dated because they don't want to evolve. They're dated because some of our policies, some of our regulations are, are age-old, right? So for us to change and evolve our drug development process, do better for the patients, we need to look at the ecosystem as a whole. We need to look at all the actors in the ecosystem that have a role to play. I think with the regulations changing with the regulators starting to think differently, opening up, like there's a digital transformation office in, in FDA that is looking into this, uh, but also even pharma companies are looking into this. as So how can we do better? Everyone wants to evolve, but wants to evolve together. So that is a big paradigm shift that I'm seeing in the industry. Uh, and that's a well-needed paradigm shift, not just for AI, but just technology in general. Shifting from how we've been doing things to what we need to do to help free up resources, free up capacity, um, free up space in our minds as well as uh, in our pockets. 
so both of those are, are, are critical. And I see that shift in the industry happening. In terms of drug development, where we are, I'll, I'll talk about this in three different segments. So as the industry and there is a paradigm shift, um, I think we as consumers or patients ourselves need to update our mindset. And we're doing that. I think that generationally we're changing. Um, how our parents might be looking at care is different than how we look at care. And our, the tools and resources we need are different. Uh, the interactions we have with our providers are different. We're much more aware of what is available to us than, than, our, uh, than our parents. So I would say that shift is happening from the ecosystem perspective, that that's what's prompting the regulators to also think differently, accept information differently. Data is powerful, very, very powerful. We're seeing trends and we're evolving. Um, I think uh, from a from a disease perspective, I feel like there's a lot of a uh, lot of awareness about the disease and the data that is uh, available to us. So ecosystem-wise, that paradigm is shifting. It's just slow in shifting. Now, drug developers and and sort of drug development-wise, I think uh, that's where the change is coming in terms of how things can be expedited, accelerated. And this is where I talk about Karen Jones and her mission about sustainability because we need to build a sustainable process and as a whole um, to develop medicines and bring them faster to patients because it's about speed, it's about cost. All of those add up today to make it heavier for the patient and the providers. If we can bring things faster, but also in a sustainable fashion, then that's where things can evolve. And that's where technology comes in. That's where AI comes in. That's where um, I'm a big believer of intelligent automation or human-assisted AI or um, some form of validation where we need to hold hands off technology so that we can make this change in the world. I I, I'm a big proponent of that. And I've seen that happen where you can bring down processes that would take you like weeks to do something down to like few days. So I've, I'm a true believer of that. But for us to do that, we also need the mindset shift. We do need people who are the, for lack of a better word, operators or actors of these technologies to understand its ability understand its drawbacks, understand their role in bringing that technology and using it for their, own, um, for their own betterment. I'll give you an example and I'll run this analogy. Tell me uh, if it resonates with you. Three years ago, we moved into this smart home. I was not a smart home type of a person three years ago, neither was my husband. Uh, and we were like, do we need so many things to run our day-to-day -day household? It took us some time to adjust, to learn, and understand what we can use that can help us accelerate some things in our life, eliminate processes because they can do better, or decide, okay, this is not for us. I feel like that same feeling and process 
needs to happen with drug development. We need to be able to assess what technology is going to help us move this along faster, make it make our processes more sustainable. What is going to hinder us from doing that? And then as humans, as operators, as learners of these technologies, we need to be able to learn to use it to our advantage and not block it. So I think part of that skepticism with AI and other technology solutions need to change. We need to do that with a sense of purpose. We, we need to adopt it from a, for creating a sustainable ecosystem in drug development so that we can bring drugs faster to patients. We can, um, we can reduce cost of those medicines to patients but also we can improve our quality of life as people working in this industry. So those three reasons are strong enough for us to try it out, see what works for us, what is going to hinder us, and what is not for us, or we're not ready, or the industry is not ready for it yet. So I, I believe that second cohort of drug development is changing, and the paradigm is shifting, as well as like I, I feel we have enough leadership in this space um, where uh, we can say that uh, people are working towards uh, sustainable visions. And I'll, I mentioned care in that space, as well as Michelle and others as well are, are striving towards that. Um, the third cohort is the patients, and that's the one closest to my heart right now. This is where Michelle Longmire and the Medable team are very close to that in terms of doing what the patients need bringing these technologies to the patients, educating them. Part of the reason Olivia joined Medible was not just because of Michelle and Ali, but also because of their mission, of what they want to do. They have the technology that is going to make lives of patients better by bringing drugs and research to patients versus where we are, we are today, where we have so many different uh, pockets of not just U.S. but of the world that are technology savvy. Everyone has a smartphone, but they cannot get to a research center or a hospital fast enough to get cured. So I feel Michelle and her mission with Medable is the third area which can which needs needs to evolve with by bringing digital solutions to patients and to caregivers so that we can bring drugs and cure to patients faster. And this is the third area, which is, which is super close. And this is why I'm here um, at Medable, because this drives me every day. This helps me get connected to a cause that is so dear to my heart, but also there is a strong sense of purpose that we need to do this to evolve and sustain the industry, but puts the patient at the center of it. We're doing it for the patient. We're doing it because we as consumers have it. We have those tools. I have banking on my phone. I have all these different tools uh, that help me. I have Instacart. I have all, like, like you name it, and I have an app which can help make my life easier when it comes to running the day-to-day -day household. Why can't we do that for patients? Why can't we give them something that they need? They've been asking for it because we need to do it. Um, and make that same leap. I think we've come a long way in that journey also. We saw that with COVID. 
when uh, when drug and when trials, clinical trials were at halt. Without these technologies, we couldn't have made it possible. So those three segments are where I'm seeing the paradigm shifting strong, with a strong force. Um, and all three of those are critical and pivotal in bringing AI, bringing any digital solutions into drug development. Something, of course, is going to be the key here, but you know, I've already talked about that, where we need to figure out what is, what is going to help us versus hinder us. I loved that analogy that you used about the moving into a house with all the smart, because it's so true. And actually, as a nation, I think that's where we are with, with AI, you know, yes, specifically in drug development, but actually in every area now with, with the fast onset of AI and how it's building and we have all this data, we're all trying to figure out what is, what is going to be useful or, and what's just a distraction? Like there is so much that we can do with the technology that is now available to us. I'm just not sure I want all of it, but I do want an awful lot of it. <laughs> you know, as, a, as an individual, you want to yeah. know about it. And AI, I feel, is in that space where it's become such a buzzword, but there's so much happening in that space. It's so hard for us to keep up with that. But I think the basic that we can do is know and keep ourselves educated about the topic. Yeah. Right? Uh, keep your eyes and ears open. Just see what, I mean, I'm seeing such amazing work done when it comes to AI and patient matching. I'm seeing such, I mean, there's a lot of potential that it shows when it comes to drug development and processes there in terms of, um, in, terms of in, in that space. But at the same time, I'm also seeing a lot of negatives with, um, I mean, here's an example for you. The image recognition for a radiology report and being able to early detect breast cancer using AI or an algorithm or a new ML model is amazing. I mean, can you imagine being able to predict and forecast and be preventive rather than reactive in that space? At the same time, Olivia, that same technology is being completely misused or used when it comes to facial recognition. I mean, I don't know if you've heard or seen this article about Spain and um, some of the negatives that are coming out um, when it comes to facial recognition in young girls and how AI is sort of that model is being used. So I feel like the same technology has pros and cons. We need to be able to use it in the right way for doing good. There will always be, um, there will always be this, um, what do you call it? A pro and con for each of those. But we need to be able to balance it and place regulations and build boundaries uh, and the right guardrails for, for yeah. the technology. It doesn't mean that it's all or nothing. It just means that we need to, uh, we need to, Sort of govern it a little better, and I feel like the regulators are starting to do that. So, so yeah. let's talk more about the patient centricity, and again with that coming back to the technology, I'd really like to get your perspective on the opportunities that that it brings for us. Where do you think, if you look at the landscape now, what is that gold standard that we're aiming for, and where are those opportunities for that? real excellence. So when it comes to 
and I'm putting AI in technology and digital solutions because um, I, I feel like it, it's part of that cohort and it was birthed from there. So what, what I think, and maybe I'll, I'll talk about drug development. I've, I see drug development as a long process that starts with research, finding a molecule that works uh, hypothetically or theoretically in, in a lab, then moving it in, in that molecule moves through um, animal studies, moves through human studies or healthy volunteer studies, and then it's given to patients that need that drug, right? So it goes through a strenuous process, a long, lengthy process. Uh, but the first stop for that process is to be discovered. You need to discover a molecule, research a molecule, and identify that this is something that is going to scientifically work with, um, with the disease or with the, with the agent that you're, you're trying to target. And I'll even narrow it down to oncology. I think that research can be fueled by uh, AI and some of the solutions. I'm starting to see a lot of momentum in that space, but you can identify some those molecules faster and have it go through the chain faster. So I'm starting to see speed, but I'm also starting to see volume in that space where you can identify more molecules. If we want to cure cancer or if we want to combat cancer that is popping up and rare diseases that are popping up left, right, and center, I think this is the way to go. So research is super important. In the first place, I would probably try it out because there are no patients involved. There are, uh, there's a lot of gates that you have to cross before you actually get to patients. But identifying and di drug discovery can be totally fueled by some of that. And I'm seeing um, you should follow um, Aviv Rajat, who heads up uh, Genentech Research and Development. Right. Aviv, uh, I had the pleasure of, I mean, while I was at Genentech, I, I think Aviv uh, came on from academia. But also, uh, I had the pleasure of hearing her speak last year at J.P. Morgan. Um, and the way she talks about using technology and using this to help us accelerate drug discovery is pretty phenomenal. And I think that's the first area that has so much potential. There's so much data already available that even if we can build models to comb through the data and identify newer targets, amazing. I mean, that's the best place to start, I would say. And the, the less riskier space because there is, there is not, there's no human involvement or the risk to human life is less, in my opinion, at yeah. least. <laughs> um, yeah. Right? So drug discovery is your first area. Then when it comes to drug development and, and sort of human starting to test out or be part of clinical trials, et cetera, that's where I would say there are two, two technologies that we need to think, two sets of technologies that we need to think of. One that helps us bring these therapies and trials and opportunities to patients. And second, using technology to our advantage as drug developers to accelerate our processes, make our processes more efficient. So that's where in the first bucket, you have Michelle and Medible, which is trying to make that leap in with, with all the digital solutions that help you decentralize clinical trials. 
bring trials to patients faster. I mean, Walgreens is in that space. I feel like there are a lot of um, efforts happening in that space. That space coupled with the mindset shifts that are being brought on by patient advocates. Um, I'll name Ricky Fairley in that space. Um, brought on by institutes like Milken. I'll name uh, Esther Krufa and Yasmin Long in that space. So technology coupled with mindset shifts for that whole ecosystem, be it the physicians, the coordinators, the caregivers, the patients, coupled with technology solutions like the digital solutions that Medibel provides is absolutely the need of the hour. And I'm seeing a lot of development in that space. Michelle herself is trying to improve her processes by bringing in AI, bringing in um, machine learning in a way that we can update our own operational processes. And this is where the second bucket comes in, where drug developers, regulators, um, providers like Michelle and Medibel all need to start leveraging technology to free up capacity for intelligent people to do intelligent work and machines to take on some of their load. There was somebody, uh, somebody in Europe, uh, or there was this meme going on, I think it was last summer or this summer, I don't remember, where most of the U.S. out of offices are like, I'm out of office, but here's my, uh, here's my cell phone, text me for anything, okay? The worst is the rest of the world is I'm out of office. I'm not yeah. checking emails, right? For, for U.S. at least, I'm going to speak about U.S. and the culture that we have. For U.S. at least to free up where I'm out of office, I'm out of office. There is no agent sitting behind the desk um, helping me answer questions. I'm not taking your phone call when I'm in a mouthy sipping on my uh, limoncello. Uh, do that for that capacity to be created for Janita, I I feel like we need to leverage technology. We need to be able to leverage technology in our operational processes for our people to have good quality of life. So that's the, those are the two areas in drug development that I would say are are critical when it comes to. Um, applying technology. And I'm seeing a lot of progress happening in that space. We're starting to come up with telemedicine. We're starting to come up with all the different things that we as consumers of goods have uh, as tools um, to our advantage. Um, the third area, which is where we collect a lot of data. We didn't talk about real world evidence and we didn't talk about some of the trials that go on. Um, and the data we collect. I feel like that third area in drug development where we have so much data, we have so much evidence that has been generated, we definitely need to apply some of these technologies specifically in, with AI that can help us generate new insights mm -hmm. from the same data. Now that there is a chicken and an egg there, um, where we have the technology, but the data is too disparate. It needs to be either curated or brought together um, to help us leverage these tools. And this is where I'm seeing a lot of startups. Uh, a few of them are pretty promising in this space where um, they are bringing together a way of 
using that data to generate new insights by still operating within the realms of safe harbor and uh, GDPR and all of that. So I feel like that third area is also similar to the drug discovery area where there's no patient involvement, but there is a lot of data that can be harnessed to build and bring it back to drug discovery. So the front and the end of the process, I would say, uh, both of them are heavily data-driven. The middle, which is the patient-centric part with decentralization of trials using digital solutions and making our operational processes more efficient by the use of technology, both of those things are, are ones that need a mindset shift alongside technology shift. So I feel like those are the three segments or, of the drug development process that I feel are seeing significant change. Um, two of them, I feel like there's a lot of data we need to harness, we need to use technology, and I'm starting to see Big Pharma use that. Um, in the middle bucket, it needs to be heavily supported by my yeah. section. Just like I couldn't go onto Instacart for the same things, uh, that I can walk to a store and go get it. It's the same analogy for me here where um, that mindset needs to shift to say, okay, if I go to the store, it's going to take me at least 90 minutes to finish A to B. But if I leverage somebody else's skill set as well as uh, let technology help me shop for this, I'm going to do it in hand. So I think that mindset shift needs to happen in the pure or the core of drug development. So exciting. (laughs) It is. is. We are definitely going to write textbooks for our kids. uh, By we, I mean our generation. Uh, There's definitely so much to be done. Listen, I'm conscious of your time. You're going to have to go, aren't you? But before you do... Time to talk to me a little bit about DEI and, and your passion in that space. So it's something when we first spoke, something that you spoke very passionately about. So I just wanted to get your thoughts about where we are as an industry focused, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry and biotech space, where we are and mm-hmm. where we need to get to. Uh, so let me start with something. Uh, I, I learn a lot from my kids, as you can see. Um, you know, the movie uh, Barbie yes. just came out. Oh, wow. Going from somebody who loved Pride and Prejudice, and I still love Pride and Prejudice, is still one of my favorite go-to movies because it, I feel the epitome of strong women doing what they want to do versus being forced into doing what culture and society are asking them to do. I, I truly love all the characters. I feel I have a similar feeling about Barbie as well. I wouldn't, I mean, they're two different genres, but I feel the same. And I, and like I said, I learned from my kids. So here's, there were times when my kids couldn't relate to things in Barbie. And I was like, huh, how can they not get this? And they're preteens, so they should be. The reason they cannot get this is because they haven't gone through it. So there are certain things that my generation went through when it comes to gender biases, when it comes to racial biases, that I feel my kids have not gone through, not just because they're young, but that doesn't exist. So I, 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 there were certain things that they couldn't relate to. 
So I take that as a positive. As somebody who's generally optimistic about life and everything she does, I, I found it very insightful as well as optimistic. As a woman, as a woman of Indian descent, I feel there were times when I got passed on because I was a woman. I had, I had responsibilities at home. I, I was of Indian descent, so the color of my skin didn't matter. So I did feel like I got passed on. I think that is shifting. It, we're not there yet. We're not even close. We're not, we've only scratched the surface on B&I and, and, and uh, gender equality. But that is changing. The fact that in drug development, we have women leaders that are of all colors, all descents, um, and are recognized and have made their name, I, it speaks about us, right? I don't, do I think we're there yet? I don't think we're there yet. I, I think we've just scratched the surface. We've just acknowledged that we have an issue. We've just acknowledged that we need to work towards this. We need to work towards gender equality. Uh, there are very few um, Kamala Harris's, I would say that have made their, made their way all the way um, up there. But they're getting there. There are a lot of leaders. I, I see so many women CEOs that are of Indian descent and have cut through that noise that I talked about and have got themselves to a place which feels comfortable to them. Doesn't mean it was an easy path. Doesn't mean they didn't have to go through what I've gone through sometimes. Uh, doesn't mean they weren't judged for being a woman or being judged for being a woman of Indian descent. Uh, they did not gain trust right away. I think we need to get to that place. So I feel when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the fact that we, we are addressing that topic is a starting point, but we have a long way to go. I'm hoping what my generation had, has had to go through or our generation and previous generations have had to go through is not something my kids will have to go through. And that's why they don't relate to some of the Barbie references. And I love that because that just tells me that I can be hopeful that someday you're not going to be passed on for a, a white yeah. male. You will be seen for what you're worth, what you bring, what, what your value is versus something uh, that just somebody has a bias about. So I, I, I think that's, that's how I feel, Olivia, that for our girls, the world will be different. How different? It's yeah. hard to say. We will say. Yeah. I mean, think about it, right? Like our... At least growing up in India, my parents, my mom, didn't have the same opportunities that I did. But they were progressive enough to let me grow the way I wanted to go, grow, follow my passions, and speak up. I think speaking up is a key quality. Because if we don't speak up and don't stand up for ourselves, be it for gender biases or for racial biases or for whatever, then we're not asking for what we want. We're just being the, um, we're just we're just being that poor person, poor individual who doesn't have a voice. But having a voice 
matters, be it in your home, be it in your workplace, be it in the industry. It really matters to speak up, not just when you see wrong, but also voicing your opinions about how you feel about something. So I, I mean, that's one thing I, I teach my kids and my girls every day, that if you're not able to stand up for yourselves, you're not going to be able to stand, stand up for the right thing that needs to happen in the industry or for the people that don't have the courage to speak up. Um, so I, going back to your point about DNI, I truly believe that the conversation has started. It has a long yeah. way to go. Spot on, I would say. Um, oh, listen, Jamita, it was, it's been so amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much. I could, I mean, we could do three different episodes and I still wouldn't <laughs> run out of questions, but um, I am conscious I need to let you carry on with your day. So thank you so much for taking this time out to speak to me. It was absolutely worth the wait. <laughs> hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for... Uh, inviting me uh, to the to your podcast series uh, it's been oh, a pleasure absolutely and that's it for another episode thank you so much for listening if you've enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast in general please do subscribe via the website thisgirlcam.com or just hit follow on whatever your chosen podcast platform is you can now join This Girl Cam as a member and if you do decide to join, you can look forward to some exciting access-only events coming up in the near future. Watch this space for more announcements there. Look out for my newsletter, which will let you enjoy this episode in either print or audio, whatever you prefer. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, X or Facebook, all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.